your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 26. We have another one of these um, tales of chivalry and uh, valor, swashbuckling, tales of danger and daring do. Uh, One thing you have to say about David is that he was rarely lacking in courage. Uh, The only thing he seemed to fear was... uh, uh, in some way grieving his Lord. In most things, he uh, responded uh, with tremendous courage. As a matter of fact, I think that's why the story of his collapse at Gath when he played the fool is so remarkable, because it was uh, so unlike David. And we, ne- we have another one of these uh, adventure tales uh, from out of, out of the past. Actually, the place to begin this story is is at the end. I have a friend who always reads the last chapter of every book that she reads because uh, then uh, she doesn't have to worry about the hero or or heroine. Uh, I was sort of pleased this uh, last week to hear that Dan Jensen had won a gold medal, and I saw it on the news before I saw the the actual race, and so I could relax while he was racing. I knew he wouldn't fall down again. And uh, uh, so it is with this uh, story. The centerpiece of the chapter is actually verse 24. Uh, David says to Saul, after all is said and done, Behold, as your life, and here I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. Now, the NASB translators and the NIV translators uh, render this verb as though it's a, it's a plea or a prayer. May I be highly valued in God's eyes when, in fact, it's, uh, it's not a plea at all. It's just an indicative verb. It states a fact. Now, what David is saying is uh, to Saul is uh, just as you are valuable in my eyes, so I am valuable in God's eyes. That's a significant difference. He's setting up an equation. The way I treat you is the way I have been treated by God. One, as a matter of fact, is the result of the other. It's a cause and effect relationship that's uh, that's set up here. Uh, this is a story about self-worth, uh, what psychologists call positive self-regard. Uh, One psychologist I read this past week, Stanley Coopersmith, defines self-worth as the evaluation which we make and maintain with regard to ourselves, the extent to which we approve or disapprove of ourselves, and the degree to which we believe ourselves to be capable, successful, and significant. We have to have significance. We can't live without it. We have to know that uh, we're important. There's, there's this I count for something thing that we all feel uh, very keenly. We have to get it either by shooting baskets or shooting people on the street or by collecting stamps or cooking or tying flies or doing something a little better than anyone else does. Our our egos have been so decimated by our sin and the sins of others that life uh, consists of a string of petty victories. We have to 
we're always competing against someone out there, some indefinable someone. We always have to be a little better than they, than they are in order to uh, feel significant. And that's what this uh, story is, uh, is concerned with. It's a, it's a tale of self-worth and how we find it. Now I want to read the first uh, 11 verses, 12 verses of the chapter, just to give you the setting and some of the uh, events that took place on that, that day. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? Jeshimon was a dreadful place. It's mentioned in the Egyptian texts as a, a desert to be crossed uh, hurriedly. In fact, they, uh, they, they describe the people there as sand dwellers. It's kind of a derisive term because in their mind, no one would dwell there except an inferior people. If you amounted to anything, you would, uh, you'd leave. It's a terrible, terrible place uh, to live. David found himself there in the what chapter 23 calls the thicket, the forest in Jeshimon. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel, his, his green berets, his delta force. The word for chosen here is uh, the word for uh, brave, courageous uh, men. They went to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul camped. In the hill of Hakalah, which is uh, before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and scouts. And he knew that uh, Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul's cousin, will Hear more of him uh, later. He was the general of his army. He's the man that uh, Bishai, uh, David's ne- nephew, later uh, assassinated. Uh, Abner was the commander of the army, and Saul was uh, lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, is a mercenary, a soldier of fortune that had joined David's uh, band into Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who was uh, David's uh, nephew, son of his uh, sister, Zeruiah, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. Immediately volunteered. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the tent, and his spear stuck in the ground at his head. The spear was a symbol of his authority. They usually had their crest at the top. And it was, uh, even today, if you go into an Arab camp, you'll see a spear stuck in the ground in front of the sheikh's uh, tent, a symbol of uh, leadership, authority, power. Then Abishai said to David, verse 8, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. And I will not strike him the second time. Just give me one shot, he says. That's all I need. But David said to Abishai, you shall not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? 
David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's uh, our word Messiah here, Meshach in Hebrew. The anointed uh, one. It's the way David looked at the king. But now please take the spear that's at his head and the jug of water and, and let's go. Vamoose before we're detected. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. The word for sound sleep is a word that's used rarely in the Old Testament, but it's used to describe those comas or trances into which God put people at various times when he had something very significant to do. That's the word that's used for the deep sleep into which Adam fell when God created from his side uh, his, uh, his helper. It's the word that's used uh, of Abraham when God cut a covenant with him. They used the, the old uh, covenantal form of that day. They took animals and divided them, put the halves, one on one side, one on the other. And normally they... The two people that were forming the contract would walk between the pieces of the animal. But uh, when God made that covenant with Abraham to bless him and his descendants forever, uh, God put, put, uh, put Abraham into a deep, deep sleep. As though to say, you don't have any part in this. I'm going to save the world through you and I'm going to do it all by myself. I don't need your help. And that's the word that's used here for, for Saul. Another symbol of God's uh, protective hand on David. David was immortal till his work was done. No one could could touch him. So what we're told here is that the, the Ziphites, uh, David's uh, friends and neighbors, betrayed him again. Uh, with with uh, friends like this, David didn't need any enemies, but he still had uh, quite a few. Uh, David, uh, Saul gathered his army of 3,000 elite young men and he went after David in this dreadful desert, the desert of Jeshimon to the south of a hill of Hakalah. If that name rings a bell, Hakalah, it's because back in chapter 23, that was the place where David was surrounded by Saul's men and, and God miraculously uh, delivered David on that, that occasion. You may remember the story. That place would have grim memories for David, but on this occasion, the tables were turned. He detected Saul's presence. He sent out scouts, and uh, they located uh, Saul's camp. Saul had drawn his wagons into a, a, a circle, a kind of temporary barricade, as uh, people coming across the Oregon Trail used to do. And Saul and his soldiers were bivouacked and bedded down within the circle of, of the wagons. All of the army sleeping around Saul. Saul in the most protected spot in the center with Abner, uh, his general, sleeping right next to him. I'm sure they posted guards, but uh, I don't think they really believed that David would attack. In the first place, in those days, battles didn't take place at night and then secondly David was vastly outnumbered they really didn't think that David would do that and so the guard was probably poorly maintained now I want you to try to visualize this this situation it's, to me it's just one of those wonderful Old Testament stories David takes two of his uh, most trusted associates Abishai who was his nephew 
Abishai is one of three great names in the Old Testament, three of David's nephews. They were all brothers. They were all the sons of his sister. Uh, Asahel and, and Joab and, and uh, Abishai. All three of these men were noted for their calculating cruelty. They were three tough guys. And uh, all through their life, they were David's bodyguards. Uh, we're told that Abishai, during his lifetime, killed over 300 men. and He was the one that wanted to take uh, Shimei out, the little man that was throwing rocks at David's head after when he was fleeing from Jerusalem. Abishai said, shall I go take that little run out? And David said, no, leave him alone. These are violent, violent men. Their saving feature was that they were intensely loyal to David. They would have laid down their lives for David. As a matter of fact, Asahel probably did. He died at some point during the, one of the battles. And when David, when David was, was older and unable to fight, it was Abishai who kept the giant from killing him. And these, were, these were men that were very loyal to David, but they were very cruel, coldly cruel, calculating men. The other man that accompanied David was uh, uh, Ahimelech, He's a Hittite warrior. He's a Gentile. He converted to uh, David's faith and was his uh, loyal companion. So David takes these three men and they come up on a bluff just, just to the south of Hakalah and there's a deep ravine in between. And they're lying on their, probably on, on their bellies uh, looking over this the edge of this cliff down at at Saul's tent, and they see the circled uh, wagons and perhaps a few fires that were that were partially extinguished and on their way to burning out, and they were able to distinguish Saul's uh, spear. <laughs> David gets an inspiration. He says to these two men, uh, "Let's go down into their camp." Now you just got to realize how much courage this would take. There were three thousand men surrounding David. And Abishai says, you count on me. And uh, the two of them make their way down this ravine by moonlight. And they slip under the wagons and, and very stealthily work their way through the sleeping soldiers till they get to the center. And all these men were charged with uh, protecting Saul. and Abner especially had that uh, responsibility. They make their way to Saul's sleeping bag and and then uh, the text gives us this whispered conversation that went on. Bishai says, ah, this, this is the time. God has put this man in your hands. Yeah. Opportunity constitutes a call. This is it. This is what you've been waiting for. Now we, you, know, you can ascend to the throne. We can all go home to our wives and children. And all of this chase will be over. And uh, just give me one shot at him. Bishai says, and he reaches over and puts his hand on the spear. And David reaches over and grasps his, his wrist and says, no, no, you, sh- you shall not kill him. He's the Lord's anointed. One of these days, the Lord will take care of him in his own way. Either he'll die in battle or he'll die of natural causes. But I, I'm not going to raise my hand against uh, the Lord's anointed. You know, I think one of the most difficult temptations to deal with uh, are the temptations that come from those that really love us and really care for us. 
people that, that want the very best for us, who are intensely loyal to us, but they just don't have the word in their hearts. They give us good counsel, but it's the wrong counsel. They want the very best for us, but the consequences of their counsel would be disastrous. You know, those in our support groups that say, you know, you, I don't know why you continue to live with that man. You deserve something better, or that woman, as the case may be. Or those that urge you in one way or another to do some ungodly thing, because it seems like the thing that's, that's best for you. you just got to know who your friends are in cases like that. You know, you have to know their hearts. Their hearts may be all right, but they're not really your friends in those cases. They're your enemies because they've become the enemies of God. Several years ago, Carolyn and I were fishing up on the North Fork of the Boise River, and she was standing out on a sandbar, and I'd been fishing for a while. I was tired, and I was just sitting out there on the sand watching her. And she, We had our little... I hesitate to call it a dog. It's uh, <laughs> nothing but hair and breath. It's about so big. And it was sitting next to Carolyn, and, uh, and all of a sudden I, I saw her lift her head and start wagging her tail, and she got this smile on her face, and she starts trucking down the sandbar. And I didn't look at her, and Carolyn turned around to watch her, and all of a sudden, I heard Carolyn yell, no, at the top of her lungs. And I turned around. Here came this coyote down the bluff. And he had a smile on his face, too. <clears throat> Cows, I don't think, wag their tails. But if he could have, you know, because he saw lunch. And uh, we had the most interesting dogfight you've ever seen for about 30 seconds. And I, and I finally got hold of uh, the loose skin on the back of Taffy's neck and just kind of hauled her away. And as I was taking her back to to the truck, I was lecturing her on who your friends are, <laughs> throw her in the truck and shut the door. You know, people that smile at you and, and look like you're kind, you know, you just, you, you got to be careful because uh, they may, though they may have good intentions, in this case the coyote didn't, but sometimes our friends do, nevertheless, uh, they're not our friends. We got to be alert to that. Abishai was asking David to do something that was ungodly. See, David knew the word. He knew that it was wrong for him to touch the Lord's anointed. That would have been sinful. He would not take matters in his own hands. He wouldn't avenge his wrong. He was going to wait for God. You know, we have seen that over and over and over again. That was the most important lesson that David had to learn because by nature he was inclined to take things in his own hands. He was capable and able of avenging, redressing wrongs. And he was constantly tempted to do that. This is actually the third situation in which we've had to face this kind of circumstance in David's life. Uh, Chris and I were talking this last week, you know, about this passage. What are we going to say? Because we've already said it over and over again. But this is the lesson that David had to learn over and over and over again. He humiliated, humiliated Saul in the cave, you know, cut the end off of his robe. He had to learn the lesson in that circumstance. And, and then with Nabal, he, you know, it, it completely went out of his mind. He was so enraged, he forgot what God had taught him. And now he has to learn it all over again. He was tempted, just as Abishai was, to kill Saul, but um, it was wrong. 
And I, I find in my own experience that God just keeps taking me back to that place of obedience. If I won't, if I won't do what He's asking me to do, He gives me another opportunity, takes me back to that same situation, and faces me again with the need of, for obedience. Until I finally begin to, to get the lesson. I think this is one lesson that David did finally get, finally learned, that he had to put things in God's hands. His, his psalms reflect that, that spirit. I've waited and waited and waited, he says in one psalm. Uh, uses a, a two verbs in tandem that convey that idea of, of long-term waiting. Kavo, kavodi, he says, I waited, I waited, I waited on the Lord. And he took my feet out of a miry clay. It's so important that we learn that lesson. That we not run ahead of God and, and do uh, and engage in acts of disobedience, even though they seem like the right thing to do. We must obey. And we must wait for God to work things out. And, and that was David on this uh, particular occasion. He, was, he quieted the passions of his own impetuous soul and, and elected to wait for the slow but steady unfolding of, of God's plan. I will not be a party to this ugly deed, he said. When Saul's hour comes, God will smite him. I will wait. So uh, the text tells us that David uh, took uh, Saul's spear. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know what to make of this. David said to Abishai, you take the spear. But yet it was David that took it. And I think what happened, either... Uh, Abishai picked up the spear and handed it to David, or, and many commentators, particularly the old uh, rabbis, uh, have this uh, perspective on it, that Abishai pulled the spear out of the sand, turned it around, and was getting ready to impale Saul, and David just took the spear away from Abishai and, and the water jug, and they made their way back through this sleeping crowd, unaware, you see, that uh, that God had cast this deep, sleep on the sleeping soldiers, just tiptoeing their way through these through these men, making their way past the guards, down through that deep ravine again by moonlight, up to their vantage point at the top of the hill, rejoining their uh, friend uh, Ahimelech. And then David starts to raise a ruckus, starts, starts to yell in the middle of the uh, of the night. Uh, let me uh, read beginning with verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. That's where they had originally started. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you who, are you who calls to the king? Who are you to wake up the king? The idea is making all this noise in the middle of the night. And then David engages in a little bit of leg pulling here. I love this uh, next section. So David shouts down to Abner, are you not a man? <laughs> Come on, Abner, are you a man or a mouse? Squeak up. Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. 
This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die. You deserve to die is the idea because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. And I think at this point, Joab must have turned around. It was pitch black. He felt around for the spear. and It was gone. And he realized that someone had stolen the spear from David's head. And it, it just both had narrowly averted death. David's teasing Joab. What kind of man are you? You're supposed to guard the king. And someone crept in and and stole the king's uh, spear. You're charged with that responsibility. You you deserve to to perish. And uh, then Saul recognized David's voice. It was dark. Couldn't see. But he knew his voice, and he said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. See, again, this wonderful respect that David accorded to uh, to his lord, his master Saul. Uh, such, such dignity, such courtesy, such kindness extended to this man who who is you know, manic uh, king who had chased David all over the all over the desert? Such a wonderful picture of loving your enemies and doing good to those that that persecute and pursue you. David said, "It is my voice, my lord, the king." Then he said, "Why is my lord pursuing his servant?" For what what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today, that I should have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other other gods." Uh, David's approach is very interesting, and I, and I think this is a pattern, though it's not a binding pattern, but it certainly is a wise pattern to pursue. And whenever someone wrongs us, whenever we're unjustly treated, uh, David pleads his innocence. So I, I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I'm not aware of any wrongdoing. When we're being unjustly charged, it's all right to uh, to protest our innocence. To say, I, I, I don't think I've done anything wrong. Express it that way. But David follows with a statement that indicates his humility. I may have. I may have done something wrong. If I have, God will forgive me. That's an interesting statement. It doesn't say, I hope you'll forgive me. He says, if I have done wrong, all I have to do is offer the proper sacrifices and I am forgiven. Now, there are some people that have a hard time forgiving us. I've had some occasions in my life where I've gone to someone that I've wronged and I've asked their forgiveness, and it's been very difficult for them to forgive me. One time years ago, I remember someone saying, I can't forgive you for what you did. And I remember walking away from that just uh, being crushed, but then remembering that though that person is not yet able to forgive me, God does. That's what frees us from guilt. Proper sacrifice has already been offered. And even if people have a hard time forgiving us, God forgives us. We're as pure as the as the driven snow.
And David does an interesting thing. Uh, he says, if it's men who have stirred you up, you Saul, up against me, they ought to be ashamed. Again, such courtesy does not blame Saul for what Saul has been doing to David. He blames his counselors. Again, this respect that David gives to his, uh, his enemy on this, in this occasion. And he reminds Saul of the harm that's being done to him. And it's all right for us to do that. Let people know that, uh, that their treatment of us is making life very hard, very difficult for us. Because sometimes people are not aware of the consequences of their actions. And David says, do you realize what you're doing to me? You're driving me out of the land of my inheritance. You're driving me out of Israel. You're forcing me to live with idol worshipers, with pagan, godless people. And that's precisely what happened to David, as you know. He was driven out of Israel, and for a time he actually became a Philistine mercenary. He fought on the side of of the Philistines. And on one occasion was almost forced to fight against his own people. If God hadn't wonderfully uh, delivered him, he he would have been guilty of uh, of being engaged in war against, uh, against Israel. So it's all right to let people know that... uh, and what's going on is, uh, is difficult for us. And then David, again, he does an interesting thing. He, he raises the, the, the question of, of Saul's motives. I think that's what he's doing in verse 20. Now then, he says, Do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord for the king of Israel. And, and that's underscored in the text. The king of Israel is heavily emphasized. Has come out to search for a flea. <laughs> That's our idiom. I'm harmless as a flea, he says. And why would the mighty king of Israel come out to search for me? I can't harm you. I'm harmless as a flea and helpless as a partridge. David's use of partridge here is very significant because in those days in Israel, they hunted partridge by running them to the ground. I don't know what kind of partridge they had back then, but they didn't take to the flight. They ran along on the ground. And so people would chase them with sticks until they were fatigued, and, and then they would uh, knock them in the head with a stick. That's the way they hunted partridge. And it's, uh, you know, it's very significant when it was applied to David, because that's exactly what Saul was trying to do, is run him, run him to ground. He was, I'm, I'm helpless. I'm harmless. What motivation do you would cause you to to try to kill me. I can't hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. Basically, what he's doing is asking the question, why are you doing what you're doing? That's a good question to ask. I had a friend years ago tell me that one one of the first questions he always asks of someone who is giving him a hard time, making life difficult for him, is can you tell me why you're doing what you're doing? Without blame, without imputing wrongdoing, just to ask them, can you tell me why you're doing what you're doing? And often motives come to the surface, which then can be dealt with either through repentance or through counsel or in some other way you can begin to delve into, uh, into those motives and begin to, uh, begin to deal with them. Then Saul said in verse 21, I have sinned. Wonderful admission on the part of, of this man. I have sinned. I have sinned, he says. 
Very often we gain the most when we yield the most. You know, it's this whole business again of giving our lives away in order to gain it. When we don't fight for our rights, when we show love to those that uh, despitefully use us, as Jesus said. If I can put it this way, we actually begin to gain power over them. Those that are under authority always have authority. It's the point that the centurion made to Jesus. I'm a man under authority. He said, I say to this man, go, and to this man, come. And they go, and they come. They do what I tell them because I'm a man under authority. And when a man or woman places uh, him or herself under the authority of Christ and they're submissive, to his will, they have an amazing amount of power over others. It's a quiet, inobtrusive uh, power, not always obvious. But when we yield, uh, we always uh, we always gain. And so this uh, miserable old king lifts up his voice and he begins to weep. You know, nothing but David's forbearance could have brought about that uh, that repentance. David said, "I've sinned. Return." Come back, my son David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool. Played the fool. It's an interesting word. It's unlike any of those words that we talked about last week that are, that are translated fool. It's really a, a word that means to act independently, to act on one's own, to act rashly without either thought of consequence or thought of what is right. Uh, the Babylonians had the same word in their language, and it's used throughout their literature of, of men and women who acted independently of, of the gods and acted in, in foolish ways, did stupid things. And, and that's what Paul, uh, that's what Saul is saying at this point. I, I've strayed away from God, I've acted independently from God, I've played the fool, committed a serious, uh, Error have erred greatly. And David answered and said, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. He holds up the spear and David, Saul couldn't see it, but uh, he wanted one of the young men to come over and take the spear and bring it back so that Saul would, every time he looked at that spear, he would remember that David again had spared his life. The Lord, he says, will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. You may remember Psalm 37, the psalm that we looked at with reference to the event that took place in the cave and uh, some of the words that are in this, uh, this particular uh, passage occur in that, in that psalm. Now our uh, theme verse. Now behold, As your life was highly valued in my sight, so my life is highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and he will deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, pronounced a blessing on David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. But again, David was no fool. He did not go back to the court. He didn't trust David, uh, didn't trust Saul. He was forced to, uh, again, flee into the wilderness. And he fled from Saul for several more months until Saul was killed in the Battle of Gilboa shortly uh, afterward. As I said, this is a, uh, this is a text about self-esteem and how you, how you achieve it. 
David said, I value you because God values me. That was the source of David's magnanimity. That's why David could be chivalrous and kind to David is because he knew how God looked at him. It's always the, the key to loving our enemies. Don't have to put them down. Don't have to prove anything. Don't have anything to gain because we don't have anything to lose. We're already loved by infinite love. We can't be loved any more than we're loved. If we're in Christ, we're the apple of God's eye. Can't help but love us. He loves us as we are, not as we should be, because nobody in this world will ever be what they should be until we stand before the Lord. He just he just loves us with all of our flaws, and all of our failures, and all of our foolishness. He just keeps on loving us. Now, the world has various ways to deal with our lack of of self-confidence. One way is to itemize our assets and liabilities. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good to objectify ourselves, sit down and decide what we can do and what we can't do. You know, I don't have any uh, aspirations, uh, any desire, maybe desire, but I don't really plan to be an interior lineman for the Dallas Cowboys because God hasn't gifted me that that way. You know, as, as nice as that would be, I have to be realistic and objective about myself. Paul says that. Let everyone think, you know, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. It's a, it's a good thing to sit down and decide, what are my gifts, what are my liabilities, uh, what can I do, what shouldn't I do? And, and, and particularly in terms of our spiritual gifts, discern what it is that God has gifted us to do within his body and then give ourselves to doing those things. And be content in that place, not be jealous or resentful because others have a place that we don't, we don't have. That's a good thing. But my experience is, and I have done that on numerous occasions, trying to decide what I can do and then do the things that I do best. But I have decided in my own life that that really does not help me a great deal in terms of feeling good about myself. It has to be something more. Uh, secular society also tells us to try to do what you can to upgrade uh, yourself. You know, where you have limitations that can be changed, uh, do it. You know, go to a gym, buy, buy a suit of clothes. You know, what whatever you need to do to do something better. If you can do it, do it. See? There's nothing wrong with that. Although that very quickly turns into narcissism. We start obsessing about our bodies and our clothes and our things. You know, we have to be really careful. There's nothing wrong with trying to remake yourself into a more self-assured version of what you used to be, I suppose. One way to put it. But even that doesn't, doesn't work very long. I tell you, there's only one thing. There's only one thing. It calms our hearts, makes us feel good about ourselves. And that's to know how God sees us, that he values us so highly. It's a matter of uh, value transfer. That's a term that I've learned recently the stockbrokers use. There are certain stocks that gain value because certain brokers who have a reputation for being right about things value them highly. And uh, people buy them up. They become very valuable because brokers 
see the value in them. And that principle works in all of life. When someone significant, someone important, thinks we're valuable that, and we increase in value. Suppose you're an artist, of, you know, you're a struggling young artist, old artist, whatever, and you're going to show your work at Arts at the Park and you have all of your, you have your easel set up and your canvases on display and people walk by and they glance at your paintings and move on to the next booth or they wrinkle their nose as though they smell something bad and move on. And it's utterly humiliating and you begin to wonder why you ever bothered. I'll never be an artist. Along comes Rembrandt, uh, resuscitated. Uh, the old Dutch master, the master of uh, light and shadow. And, and he stops at your booth and he looks at your painting and he says... That is pure genius. I'll give you a, a, a million dollars or a million krona or whatever he had in his pocket for that painting. All of you come over. There's tremendous potential in this artist. You people come over and look at this. You think you wouldn't feel good about yourself? You see, that's exactly what God does for us. The most significant person in the face of the earth, the creator of the universe, thinks you are very, very important. I always think of the story of Bow Wow. Bow Wow was a dog that uh, one of our sons adopted 30 years ago. It was a rag dog. Most miserable looking thing I ever saw in my life. Filthy, dirty, got dragged in the dirt. When we could get it away from him, we'd throw it in the washing machine and, and all the stuffings came out of it and it just end, ended up being a, just a, a shred of a dog, you know, but, but that was Bow Wow and Bow Wow was greatly loved. Valuable beyond all computing, you know. Uh, Radar's, uh, teddy bear and Schroeder's, uh, blanket and, uh, the Velveteen Rabbit all rolled up in one. You know. That boy loved that dog. The most miserable looking thing I ever saw in my life. Had absolutely no intrinsic value, but valuable beyond all computing because it was loved by our boy. Couldn't get that thing away from him. Now that's what I want you to understand. You're loved that way. Uh, you're loved so much. I'm loved so much that the creator of the universe is willing to die for us. That's how much you're loved. Valuable. That's what enables us to be magnanimous to others. When we realize that we're big in God's eyes, we can exalt other people. We don't have to win a string of petty victories. We don't have to put other people down. We don't have to prove anything. Because we're already loved. I want to close by reading something that uh, Carolyn read to the women at a conference some years ago. It's a wonderful story that Brennan Manning tells about a young nun who had attended a conference that uh, he was uh, at which he was speaking. And during the meeting, she uh, she didn't she kept to herself, didn't communicate at all, didn't laugh or cry or react or respond with in, in any way at all. Then one day there was a, a time of sharing. 
And she stood. She began to talk. Big tears began to stream down her face as she talked. And this is what she said. I'm, I'm quoting from his book, The Signature of Jesus. You're speaking, Brennan, on the compassion of Jesus. You developed the two images of a, of husband and lover found in Isaiah 54 and Hosea 2. Then you quoted the words of St. Augustine, Christ is the best husband. At the end of your talk, you prayed that we might experience what you had just shared. You asked us to close our eyes. Almost the moment I did, something happened. By faith, I was transported into a large ballroom filled with people. I was sitting by myself on a wooden chair. When a man approached me, took my hand and led me onto the floor. He held me in his arms and led me in the dance. The tempo of the music increased and we whirled faster and faster. The man's eyes never left my face. His radiant smile covered me with warmth, delight, and acceptance. Everyone else on the floor stopped dancing. They were staring at us. The beat of the music increased and we pirouetted around the room in reckless rhythm. I glanced at his hands and then I knew. Brilliant wounds of a battle long ago, almost like a signature carved in flesh. The music tapered to a slow, lilting melody. As the dance ended, Jesus pulled me close to him. Do you know what he whispered, she asked. At this moment, every retreatant in the chapel strained forward. Tears rolled down Christine's cheeks. A full minute of silence ensued. Then her face was beaming, though the tears kept falling. Finally, she spoke. He whispered to me, Christine, I'm wild about you. The love of Jesus swept over me like a gentle tide, saturating my being in wonder, bewilderment, peace, certitude, and deep worship. And that's what our Lord is saying to each one of me. I'm crazy about you. I'm wild about you. You're the most significant person. If you were the only person in the world, I would have died for you. And it's that understanding that sets us free to love others. We love, John said, because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we are your rag dogs. Intrinsically worthless, dirty, but precious beyond all computing by, because we're loved by the one who is love itself. How refreshing that is. How comforting that is. To know that we don't have to prove anything any longer because we don't have anything left to prove. We're your beloved children. We thank you for that, that great word of assurance. We take it by faith. We have the courage to accept your acceptance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.